Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Firstly, again, thank you all for coming to our conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase. This has really been a lot of fun this first day, and thank you for hanging out and seeing all the sessions. I hope you learned a thing or two, especially you. Um, And uh, really, really, truly appreciate just your followership, not just being here in Vegas, but also in listening to our podcast and uh, following everything that we got going on. So, This is the Planet Microcap Podcast Live. We close out every day one with this panel. And I'd like to introduce my my colleagues for this one this year, starting with Ryan Irvin from Keystone Financial. We have Sam Namiri from Ridgewood Investments, Harris Perlman from HSP Capital, and then Matthew Martin from Reef Mall Investments. We have a lot to cover today in 45 minutes, maybe even a little bit more. But you know what? I want to start off with... Um, talking about, you know, kind of the, the current market conditions, how we've been approaching it. And so my first question for everybody here is, let, let's start with the following. H- has your investing style changed as a result of recent market conditions? So Ryan, your guinea pig number one. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, one of the things we try to do is steady ourselves in any type of market conditions and uh, not vary our strategy at all. I provided this question and then I basically say, no, not at all. We haven't. But we, one, of the, one of the things we do check a little more right now in a rising rate environment is uh, the balance sheet. We check to see if there is variable rates in the debt situation of each company. So that is something we're paying a little more attention to right now. But I think the key for us is to we, – we value companies based on cash flow, based on interviewing management teams, getting to know the intellectual capital behind the company – we're not changing that. The moment you step outside, or we think we step outside our little box that we like in terms of what we're looking for in an individual company, that's when you can make mistakes. So there's a lot of noise in the markets. There always is. There's tons of noise right now. We try to pay attention to just great, profitable businesses, good, solid cash flow, good balance sheets. On the balance sheet right now, like I said, one of the things we do pay attention to is the debt structure. Is it variable? Uh, how, you know, is there some rates on that balance sheet coming due over the next year? So things that we would not look at, I mean, we'd look at all the time, but we'd look at if the rate environment was zero versus where it is today. That might be something we'd look at more. Very cool. Sam? Um, I wouldn't say the style has changed as much as now I'm actually concentrating the portfolio more. So I'm getting out of some of the names that weren't as high quality and moving them into moving the portfolio more into better quality names, more attractive prices. Um, you know, when when markets generally more expensive, it's uh, you know it's harder to find good opportunities. So now there's more opportunities out there. It's like why not try to pick the best ones? So that's I'd say that's the, probably the biggest thing that's changed. Um, you know, some of the the, the fast the high flyers, the the the, uh, the growth stocks, um, leaning more a little bit more value than growth. I'd say. Um, but that's that's probably the biggest the biggest change. Nice, Harris. Uh, yeah, I think I actually agree with both of what you guys said. Um, I think one addition I would make is um, during the real dislocations of COVID, it felt like there was a lot more to do with regard to figuring out what companies were uh, winning and which were losing from COVID. And I feel like now we're in kind of a mostly post or normalized environment, and so. Um, it makes it a little bit easier to analyze companies, I think, but it also kind of takes away some of those opportunities that were caused by the COVID dis- dislocations. So just uh, changing the strategy a little bit as that changes. Very good. Matthew? 
Yeah, I would say uh, similar to what Sam uh, mentioned, uh, being more concentrated is uh, the biggest change, I think, and focusing on higher quality companies as well. Um, it's like uh, a little bit uh, going back to my roots. When I, back when I was a private investor, I used to run a very concentrated portfolio of uh, anywhere from three to 10 stocks. And uh, five years ago, I started managing uh, a microcap fund, so more capital. Uh, meant that uh, I had to be a little bit more diversified and uh, run a portfolio of uh, 25 to 35 stocks. Uh, but uh, since uh, the recent downturn in microcaps, uh, all the high-quality names are on sale, and so I really concentrated the portfolio even more. Uh, right now, I think uh, about two-thirds of the portfolio is in five stocks or, or cash, so uh, uh, that's the, the biggest change. Very good. You know, it's funny. One of my questions for you guys was uh, with all the macro uncertainty or just with all the different things going on, you know, it, it, the question was, is this a time to be more concentrated or diversified? But I think uh, I think we're just going to save that one for later and assume it's a yes to concentrate it at this point while still evaluating some interesting ideas that might be out there because they're, you know, they've, they've come off some of their, their recent highs. But Matthew, coming back to you, you know, my next question for all you guys is, is there any sector you think is especially interesting right now or love to hear your thoughts there? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, for us, uh, we're very uh, active in the Canadian market. Uh, so I think uh, tech stocks in particular, uh, I mean, it's uh, in the U.S. as well. I think a lot of tech stocks have, uh, are beaten down, beaten down right now. But uh, in Canada, um, what I'm seeing in the smaller names is you can find really high-quality uh, tech companies that are growing their revenues, they have recurring revenues, they are uh, profitable, or, or they have the balance sheet to grow into profitability, and uh, at valuations that really we haven't seen in uh, a very long time. So um, um, really excited about uh, the tech sector right now. Cool. I'm going to do this like a stake draft. So Harris, I'm coming to you. Uh, yeah, actually, um, I sort of echo a little bit of that point, but um, one of my favorite themes, and I think it's more doable now with uh, valuations coming off a lot, is um, I really like companies that are um, tech-like or they look kind of like a software business in terms of their um, nature of sticky cash flows and asset-light businesses with growth. Um, I've noticed in the past, um, and I think also probably going forward, it's an interesting area to look at because um, specialist tech investors tend to overlook some of these higher quality companies just because they're not um, quote unquote tech or software, but um, often those businesses have the same ability to deliver very good long-term returns. So I like those a lot and I'm still looking at those a lot. Sam? Um, yeah, with, I agree with both of them in terms of tech, um, especially Canadian listed tech companies seem to be pretty attractive, especially versus US peers. Um, but another sector I'm looking at is, after SVB, is uh, the banking sector. I think there's uh, the whole industry has been hit badly valuation-wise, and you know if you can pick the right ones, which is what I'm looking for, is uh, you, I think you can have some big, big winners over the long long term. Cool, Brian. Yeah, I will third or fourth tech, um, and and in the Canadian market, that's where we come from. Uh, the balance sheet again, we're looking at tech with cash that can take advantage of um, some other smaller tech names, whether they're public or private, that have come on sale and can potentially buy those businesses right now. So that's one thing we're looking at. We're very sector agnostic and we don't play into themes a lot. And now I'm going to talk about a couple themes <laughs> right after I say that. So of course, um, electrification is something that we have um, been playing and looking into for a number of years. Um, but not necessarily like the obvious or the EV names, the Teslas of the world, but companies that are providing the backbones of infrastructure or grid uh, build out. Um, I'll give you an example, and I do own this company. Uh, we have for years. Uh, we owned it for about 17 years. It's called Hammond Power. Um, it, yeah. What they provide is a simple transformer. Now, it's not Autobots and Decepticons, that would be really cool, but uh, we're talking about something that steps up and steps down power to travel over a long distance and bring it in. Well, they every uh, Tesla charging station in Canada, for example, has a Hammond Power transformer at it. So it's a smaller part of the business, but we were able to buy this business when it was very cheap, very profitable, 
and then it, it gets this kick from uh, it's supporting electric vehicles, it's supporting uh, solar, all of these sexier stories that are coming, you know, that we see today that, that bring a little higher multiple to the company. I love buying those businesses when they're very unsexy and you can project going forward that maybe it'll get a little bit sexier and get a multiple kick in the market. So anything in electrification, we're actually going through about 100 names in the US and Canada right now that are kind of unknown, smaller names that are just providing this type of backbone to what we think is a you know, 10 to 15 to 20 year build in the electrification of the planet, really. So that, and then just generally, we like recession-resistant companies right now. So companies that can uh, benefit in a downturn or at least stay level in a downturn if we do see further uh, further recession. Uh, yeah, I'll let you. So I just wanted to add um, another theme or sector is um, the infrastructure bill that was passed in the US in, I think it was like November of 21. Um, I think that um, I'm looking at names that would benefit from that, and they've actually been hit quite badly because a lot of the money wasn't deployed in 22. Um, if you actually look at the bill, a lot of it says to that you know a lot of states and counties and cities are supposed to report back by the end of 2022 with where that money is going to be spent. So um, I think there's a lot of microcaps that have been talking about getting the benefit of from that bill, and um, you know the market doesn't believe they're going to get it because they didn't get it last year. So. Patience, um, I think, will be worth it for those companies and the investors in those companies. Absolutely. You know, one quick follow-up to this sector question, and this is just for one of you if you want to tackle it, you know, because, I mean, there seems to be a commonality of tech, you know, banking, you know, recession-proof kind of stuff. Has there been any theme or sector that has surprised you that's looked kind of interesting as a result of some of these macro factors that have uh, come into play? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Harris? I'll make a, a random um, note. So this is a company that I, I own, and I have pitched it publicly before. Um, but I think there are little dislocations that have happened in parts of the economy and the market that, um, in microcap specifically, might get almost no attention. So, for example, um, several months ago, I um, publicly pitched a company in Canada called a Supremex, which is a manufacturer of, of envelopes. And... Um, one of the factors um, of COVID was a lot of envelope manufacturers reduced their um, capacity footprint in the downturn. And uh, coming out of the downturn, uh, there was a lot of tightness. And so um, the supply-demand balance really shifted in the favor of these little companies, of which only one is publicly traded. So when you find these little dislocations, I mean, it can be something as small as you know a component in the paper industry. But um, one of the nice things about microcaps is that there just aren't very many eyes on them, and you might be one of the few people to, re to recognize that this dislocation is happening. Cool. Yeah, that company's been in our portfolio for like a year and a half, two years now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unique, cheap, increased their dividend. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting company for sure, and we do own it. Very cool. All right, so my next question for you guys, you know, kind of along this theme a little bit here, you know, Love, love for each of you to name two to three elements you're looking for in small microcaps as you look to deploy capital in 2023 that maybe you didn't pay as much attention to in uh, five to ten years ago. Sam, you want to start us off there? Um, sure. I'd say one big thing, one big theme I've been looking at recently is um, companies that actually have a lot of hair on them. Um, like, for instance, like they may have a lawsuit against them or an investigation or an auditor left. Um, you know, usually the valuations get slammed quite badly, and if they, you know, if they've gone, you know, if they can win a lawsuit, you know, or settle, you know, for what, you know, it's kind of more than what's being priced, or less, they settle for less than what is being priced in, you know, I think that that's something that I didn't do probably a few years ago. So. I was out of left field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I don't know how anybody could top that one. That was that that was definitely not a, something I expected. Harris, um, I, I think I've gotten um, hopefully better over the past <laughs> five or ten years. So um, there's probably a lot of things I do differently. Uh, one thing I've spent more time on has been um, really looking more deeply into the balance sheet and specifically more deeply into real estate. Um, I think one interesting thing is. Uh, 
industrial real estate values have increased substantially over the past five or ten years, um, especially over the past few. And so um, I think it's really interesting to look really deeply for potential hidden real estate values on some of these small company balance sheets. And uh, it's also something that, you know, few other people are doing, and you can get a really good uh, analytical edge when you do the work. Cool. Matthew? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to insert the, the question in a slightly different way because it has no, nothing to do with the current market environment or, or 2023, uh, how I see the outlook. But in general, I would say uh, how my style has evolved over time is uh, when I started investing 10 years ago, I, I used to pay a lot of attention to management. Uh, is this a good story? And then the numbers, you know, what's the valuation? Uh, with little regards to the, the quality of the business. And it's something that uh, I pay a lot more attention to. Uh, I would say in the last couple of years, uh, my style has evolved to focus way more on, on, on quality. Uh, and I read a, a great book uh, called uh, The Little Book That Builds Wealth by Pat Dorsey. I highly recommend it uh, for those who are interested in understanding uh, competitive advantages and uh, how uh, companies can can build moats. Uh, so uh, in in microcaps, it, it the companies are so early stage that typically they, they don't have a really big moat, uh, but hopefully they maybe they dominate a small niche or they do something really specific that hopefully they can expand over time. Uh, so that's uh, that's what I, I've been paying more attention to. Cool, Ryan, you want to close us out on this one? Yeah, I mean, we part of our research looks into companies. You know, you want to find the cheapest, best growing company. Uh, you know, in the microcap sector, and we've been doing that for a couple decades now. Um, but there's another part of our research that just looks at, and we don't. I'd always want a business, maybe 10 years ago, that was the cheapest business out there that I think that could grow at an accelerated rate going forward. Well, I think now, I mean, I recognize that sometimes you do have to pay up for a very high-quality business, and um, we're doing that now in some names that we really like. I would always, oh, I'm not going to pay 20 times earnings for this stock, even though I think it can grow at 20%. Or, you know, it, w- it would be a bit of a blind spot for us, and I think we've kind of rounded that out to where we're not being too cute with the entry point in a company. Uh, if we think the company is going to be substantially higher three to five years from now, we think it's a very high-quality business, we'll buy. Even if we bought lower in the past and it's come up and we want to buy for clients, um, we would say buy, you know, even if it's up 200%, if we still think it's a great company. I like to give examples, and this is a company that we have owned, our clients have owned for uh, about four or five years. It's called Aritzia. It's based, I'm from Vancouver, Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, it started there uh, about 20 years ago. It's a great business. It probably trades, it's come down from about 55 to the 43, 42 range. We're looking, we originally bought at $16, but we're, we're here where we want to add some more. Um, now, there's potential fatigue in the consumer over the next year. Do we try to get too cute and buy it if it comes off 10 or 15% from here? Well, we like the business three to five years forward, so... Uh, and I think it'll be substantially higher. They penetrated the U.S. market. U.S. market is now 55% of their sales, where it was in the last quarter. It was always below half. But what I'm trying to say is one of the things we're looking at is you just want to buy a quality business. You're not going to pay anything for it. You're not going to pay 100 times. You think it's going to grow at 25%. But if it's growing at 23% and it's trading at 22 times earnings, you know, and you think it's going to grow that earnings level at an accelerated rate or even that rate going forward, pay up for that quality business. Uh, and it's one of the things we've learned over the last maybe 10 years. You said, you said Aritzia, right? Aritzia. Oh, there's, Aritzia. I would say that the consumer, uh, 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 what, is, what was the phrase again? Um, fatigue. Fatigue yeah. is definitely not low in the craft household. That, I think, yeah. is my wife's favorite brand. Oh, and, it's, and for full disclosure, I'm not funny. a shareholder. I, I talked to like three clients in the last week. One was in New York, and they were outside in Aritzia there, and it was lined up. One was in Saskatoon. Which is, if it doesn't, it sounds like a made-up place, but it's in Canada in the middle. <laughs> but we actually have an analyst there as well. But and, just and his, to say it's in Canada, and yeah, everybody. Him and his aunt yeah. were at this store over the past uh, week. It was lined up outside there, and in Vancouver, I was downtown, and 
I lighten my wallet in that store too. So I mean, that's <laughs> anecdotal, but you know, it, it's, it's a quality brand. They never closed the store. It sounds like I'm pitching it, but I, I'm just, the point was it's not cheap. You know, it, it's not trading at 10 times and growing at 40%, but it's tr you know, trading at a reasonable valuation and we like it long-term. So we've learned to pay up for a quality business. Can I go on from one side? Thanks. Okay, so, so if you look at, if you look at um, Warren Buffett when he bought his position in Nike, like it's one of the biggest success stories of his long term. Uh, he wasn't buying it like at 10 times earnings. He was buying between 18 and 25 times for years. And, you know, it was growing at 15 to 18%. Again, a quality business bought at a reasonable price, and that's something we've learned. So I like to give my example there, too. Fair I'll enough. I'll let you talk. No, 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 you're Thanks. good. That Sorry. was good. So I wanted to move on to our next topic because I definitely want to get a lot of q and I think uh, there's going to be some great questions here today. But, you know, another um, – this, this next part of the talk is on, like, recent trends and their potential effects on microcaps. And this – you know, when I asked you guys for some topics maybe to talk about, I actually didn't expect this one to be talked about at all, but it has to do with AI. And the question is, you know, how will AI change the investing landscape in microcaps? And how do you believe generative AI will affect the markets over the next decade? Right, it's a three-part question. And where do you think the opportunities will emerge? So, Matthew, you want to take on this extremely heavy, heavy topic? I can, I can try. Okay, let's go. Um, so I, I think um, I actually uh, when, when there's a new, um, a new trend in the market, uh, since, since the launch of uh, ChatGPT, there's been a lot of uh, buzz uh, around AI. And typically, Canadian companies are really quick to get on the bandwagon and uh, try to, <laughs> you know what? Um, uh, see cannabis, see blockchain. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So, uh, so I, I've seen a ton of news releases from uh, different Canadian companies um, touting their AI cap capabilities. And so I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of it, um, uh, you know, will be just to try to attract investors' interest. So it's, it's hard to see at this point uh, what will come out of it, uh, what will be the real use cases. Um, but, you know, I can g give an example of a company that's presenting at the conference, and I don't own it. Uh, it's uh, Wishpond Technologies, and uh, it's a marketing platform for uh, small and medium-sized businesses. And uh, basically, they developed an AI-powered tool for, uh, to, to build websites for, uh, for SMBs. And uh, you, you can really see how, uh, and I, by the way, I saw, I saw a demo of the platform. It's really impressive what they can do with it. And so that's a real use case. Uh, you, you can see how they can save time, save manual labor. Uh, they can uh, probably uh, improve their value propositions for their customers. And so uh, that's, that's, those are the real use cases that I'm looking at uh, for, for tech companies. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how it evolves. Sounds good. I'm gonna, I'll jump around. I'll go to Sam next. Um, I, think, I think especially for, from my perspective, um, you know, on the company side, yes, the, you know, AI, AI's been there for some time, at least as a, as a hype or as kind of a, what's the word, like a buzzword. But um, I think on the research side, I think it can help a lot of analysts or people analyzing stocks. Um, I think it could make one person a lot more efficient. Um, for instance, like you could summarize transcripts, right, or get in, and see, hey, like what, what, what's there? Um, I think that also creates a lot of opportunities for the people who actually read every word of a transcript, right, instead of letting a computer do it too. So I think it, there's a balance um, that can be done. Um, I think it'll help, I think, again, eventually at some point, um, if someone can crack the code, it can help um, in terms of searching for companies, screening for companies. Um, I think AI, if you give it, you know, I think if you give it the right parameters, it can search through a lot of data very, very fast and do it a lot better than humans can. And so I think on the, on the screening side, it'll, it'll change. I mean, there have been funds out there, I mean, Renaissance Technologies being uh, like a famous one that, you know, has been doing some sort of AI for a long time now, um, machine learning, whatever you want to call it. But um, I, th I think that's, that's where I'm most excited about is, you know, especially on the, the, the that's where I guess part of it, part of being a microcap investor may be tough, is because you don't have the same resources that a large fund, you know, that invests in large large amounts of capital can have to invest in these tools. Um, but I think it's actually getting quite interesting because it's getting a lot cheaper to use AI. 
Um, and I think that's really been the, the big change in ChatGPT is you know, how inexpensive it's gotten. And all of us can you know, pay 20 bucks a month right now and, and get an account. So um, it's going to be interesting to see, especially on with smaller pools of capital, where you could find um, you know, these little niches where you can actually exploit um, an opportunity. For sure. Yeah, no, we're working on the Planet Microcap AI tool as we speak. We'll debut it at next year's event. Um, but uh, Harris, I'd like to hear your thoughts here too. Uh, yeah, well, I think as Matthew said, um, probably in the microcap space, company-wise, the most profound effect is going to be there's going to be a lot of money raised by scam businesses about AI and then subsequently lost by a lot of disillusioned investors after the fact. Um, I think the research side is kind of interesting. I think, as Sam said, like, it really could uh, change the game for a lot of investing research over time. I think one of the interesting things about microcaps is that often the data is so bad, as in like it doesn't get pulled in correctly into various databases. When you're screening for companies, very often microcaps don't uh, get pulled up properly because of the bad data. So, I mean, <laughs> I think one of the things might be microcaps might just become even more inefficient in relative terms to larger companies. Like, it's going to be even more important to have some humans doing research for some of these small companies that don't fit into the nice, you know, AI uh, data mold. Um, I could be wrong on that, but it's just my my sense is that there's always going to be some need to have uh, smart humans doing work for things that don't reach institutional scale. Very good, Brian. You want to close this out on this? Yeah, I think it's going to completely replace all of us. So I, I think we should just give up. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think that I think Sam makes a good point. I mean, we, we're actually there's somebody in our office that's actually pulling out, using it right now to pull out some of the KPIs we might look at, like uh, growth going forward, growth in the last quarter, and we're pulling out like ten news releases or ten filings a day where we can look at. But it well, we can tell you it misses things. So like Sam's point was there's still a place for somebody who's going to actually read the entire document um, because that is where, you know, you can gain an edge, like, as, as I'm sure my colleagues here know. Uh, that is what we do. We read through, uh, actually put eyes on these financial statements, MD&As, um, and, uh, and find the little nuggets in there that can uh, lead to an outstretched gain over the long term. But, you know, I think it is interesting in being able to sort through a lot of data uh, it will change the way we sort through things, but you know we're still cautious not to use it completely just to to make our uh, to to pull out the companies that we might want to look at. We still have to read those full documents. Very good. All right, next question that I wanted to ask all of you today, and Harris, I'm going to come to you on this one because I think you 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 sent this one in. You know, what do you all think about the role of activism in microcaps today? Um. I think it's interesting. Uh, I, I sent oh, the question good. in hoping that, <laughs> hoping that I was going to hear some of my colleagues' thoughts on this topic. Um, yeah, so oh, um, I, uh, I think microcaps are, um, you know, microcaps can seem a little easier to do activism because they're so small. So hypothetically, you can go activist for a smaller dollar figure, but there's still the same kind of hurdles as far as, um, you know, the, the poison pill still exists in the U.S. Um, I think... Activism in some other jurisdictions like Canada can be more interesting because typically there are fewer defensive tactics at, um, available for some of these companies. I also really like the idea, although I don't really know um, necessarily the best way to implement it, but as, um, as regulatory and compliance costs for being publicly traded um, seem to keep going up and up, um, being activist might also mean uh, being acquisitive and potentially being a... Uh, you know, a force to um, close the public-private valuation gap and also eliminate some of those uh, unnecessary publicly traded company costs by, um, you know, going after some of these small companies uh, as a whole. So I think that's another angle that could be interesting. Cool. Matthew? Yeah, um, well, I think in the in the last uh, couple of years, it's, you know, everyone knows it's been... Uh, getting more challenging to raise capital, and I think um, a lot of uh, companies that have been mismanaged uh, that were able to stay afloat before by raising more capital are not necessarily able to do so right now. So I think there are plenty of opportunities for that are ripe for activism. Uh, 
personally in Canada, the companies that I follow, I haven't seen more activist campaigns uh, lately, but um, if, if someone would like to do it, I think that there are definitely a lot of opportunities. It's not my style personally, but um, some companies could, could use uh, guidance and, and advice to, on, on how to run their, their business. He's being nice. He means a good kick in the ass. <laughs> um, Ryan? Um, it's not totally our style, um, but you know, there, there's some companies we've told them flat out that you shouldn't be public, right? They just, it, it, for a number of reasons. Uh, we, can, we like to give guidance on things like, even in the small cap sector, uh, even micro caps, uh, paying a dividend at times and having, you know, not paying just a one-time dividend. We would ex rather have them pay a dividend, pay it at 20% of cash flow, for example, and increase that over time. So giving guidance on things like those are things that in companies we own, we've done it many times and we'll continue to do it in the Canadian market. It's been very successful for some names. It, it, it holds people in the companies when there's a, you know, a downturn, which there eventually is. Um, it's one of the things that we advise on with the companies that we own or the companies that we recommend to our clients. Very cool. Sam, close us out. Yeah, I mean, is there a place for it? Yes. Um, should more of it happen? That's questionable because I think the costs, again, versus the size of the asset class is, makes, it, makes it more difficult to do. Um, personally, for me, I just think it's not worth the effort. Um, I like to find things that are easy, easy ways to make money. Why well, try to find hard, hard ways to make money if you can find easier ones? Um, and, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a place. There's a lot of, there's, there's a, I won't say a lot, but there's a, some really high quality assets that um, you know the board and the management team is not looking out for all stakeholders and are looking out, I think, more more for themselves and, and take a lot of value away from the shareholders where the shareholders could get a lot of value. So um, that's that's kind of my thought on that. I just wanted to follow up on the AI aspect as well too. Um, you know, AI can't do things like come to this conference. You know, they they can't talk to other like I mean, not right now at least. Um, they can't talk to other people. They can't pick up the phone and call somebody and kind of get their thoughts. Right, um, you know, they can't talk to management and say, "Hey, like, you know, why did you do this?" Right, um, and sometimes management doesn't want to give away things publicly so that competitors don't hear it. Right, so um, especially on the strategy side, and so that's that's one thing I think that um, you know humans will probably for a long time, especially in microcap, have an advantage over AI. For sure, I don't know if you've gotten some recent robocalls, but I've been fooled very recently. But, um, you know, quick follow-up on the role of activism in microcaps. I mean, in your guys' opinion, do you, do you feel like it's been more robust of late, or has it been slightly... It seems like it's been more quiet to me. I, I don't know. I'd like to hear what you guys have to think. Quiet. It's been quiet, quiet right? Yeah. Around, yeah, yeah. Over the, the past year has been strange in the markets, period. But, yeah, you know, period, yeah. 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 So. Quieter. Your thoughts? Um, the few I've followed, I'd say... I mean, I, I don't really look, look for it, to be honest. It's usually, like, sometimes the name I'm looking at ends up, um, you know, having kind of a, maybe a board fight, I'd say, more than anything. Um, and I really haven't seen any benefit from it. Usually, it, like, lasts, it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of the companies and management's energy and effort away. Um, and so I think, I think that's one of the things, I think, the few that I've seen just haven't worked out. And to be honest, it, like, re-up, it happens again two, three years later as well, too. So um, it creates this kind of vicious cycle. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I haven't seen too many recently. Uh, yeah, I suspect it might be a little quiet, possibly because um, as valuations have come down, it might not be considered necessary to take that kind of a tactic to make good returns. So, you know, people are sort of retrenching and finding other interesting things to do, uh, maybe rather than reaching for uh, an activist strategy. Yeah, I agree with Sam. Uh, I mean, I'm not really looking for uh, activist uh, situations, so um, I haven't seen more lately than uh, than in the past, really. Got it. All right, so I want to get to this Q&A real quick. So I had two more questions that I wanted to get for you guys. And this next question, you guys more or less kind of answered it, but I, I think I'm going to just go to the second part of it. You know, we talked about, you know, are there have you guys been seeing more opportunities in Canada or the U.S. right now? Or would you say it's been more global? You know, um, love, you know, we've had, I think there was an Australian side that was talked about in a panel earlier today. Uh, obviously, I think uh, Poland, all over the place, especially on some of the forums that we're all subscribed to. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. Are you seeing more opportunities just more globally outside the U.S. or in the U.S.? Uh, Ryan, let me go first with you. 
Always just in Canada, because that's where I'm from, right? So that's where we find them all. No, I, I mean, there's more of a breadth of companies in the U.S., so you know, more, you know, across different sectors. Um, there's, you know, 50% of the Canadian index is resource and financials, right? So there's not as much of a breadth there, although like, there are these orphans that we find in the Canadian market that are completely ignored, and those can be, you know, your real opportunities. And there are some sitting there right now that are being ignored. I think we had that, you know, across the panel today that, uh, that in the Canadian market and the U.S. in the small cap sector, and that's what we're looking at right now. Cool. Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think there's just too many opportunities in the U.S. or North America in general that, um, I mean, I get, you, there's no reason for me to look outside. I mean, occasionally I'll look at Western Europe, um, but unless, like, someone that I know comes and says, hey, this is, like, an interesting opportunity, maybe take a look at it, um, I don't really go searching for it. Um, and even, like, the Canadian-listed companies, usually, like, I want them to be U.S.-based businesses. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally I see more opportunities in Canada um, just because the valuations for a like-kind business is cheaper in the U.S. Um, but, but I'm, I mean, there's still so many opportunities in the U.S. that I look at both. Uh, yeah, I, I also really like Canada. I mean, it's weird because there are so many people here who probably own a lot of Canadian microcaps, and yet <laughs> there, there seems to still be a valuation discrepancy against what the U.S. counterparts would be valued at. But, um, you know, Canada, uh, Australia is kind of similar in some ways. Um, I like English-speaking countries because I speak English, and I have difficulty with, uh, you know, trying to understand not just language barriers, but also some cultural barriers and other jurisdictions. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it really, a lot of it is from, uh, or probably caused by uh, the inability or the relative difficulty for a lot of uh, U.S. Uh, retail platforms to um, offer access to uh, other jurisdictions. And so there's just fewer American uh, buyers for a lot of these stocks. And I think you can see the similar effects and the differences in valuations between um, OTC pink sheets listed American companies versus uh, small NASDAQ listed companies. And you know, is that because they're just suffering the same difference in access? And, you know, possibly, but it's an interesting reason to look at those different areas of the market. Matthew, I, this is just, we'll answer Canada or even just Montreal based. <laughs> yeah. To support, to support your Montreal. Yeah, Montreal. I follow 10 companies. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, but uh, frankly, I haven't been uh, looking internationally uh, at all. Uh, my focus, as you said, is mainly in Canada, a little bit in the U.S. I would say I spend probably 90, 95% of my time on, on the, the Canadian market. And for me, it's, it's, it's just a matter of focus. Um, I know this market extremely well. I know uh, the investors, the, uh, the investment banks, the IR firms. I've met uh, hundreds of different management teams. So uh, I feel like I, I know the ecosystem really well in Canada, and that's... Uh, that's how I find the opportunities before everyone else, hopefully. So, um, uh, yeah, just as a matter of focus, I'm, I'm, I'm staying uh, in my own country. Very cool. All right, my final question for you guys before we get to the Q&A and open it up to the audience. Um, I actually asked this question earlier to uh, Andrew and uh, Michael during their session. So if you were there for that, I apologize for hearing a repeater. You know, I want to hear from everybody. But, you know, for you guys, what keeps you up at night about the markets in 2023, you know, your biggest worry? And then also, what excites you when you think about 2023? Uh, Matthew, we'll come to you first, and then we'll work our way back. All right. Um, so in terms of uh, biggest worry, I would say, um, you know, it's been a, a challenging uh, couple of years. Uh, and especially uh, in the Canadian market, uh, if you look at non-resources companies, it's, it's not really... Uh, well captured by the NDCs in Canada because the market is so f uh, heavily focused on uh, natural resources. And um, so I, I feel like for, for me personally in tech, in healthcare, in consumer goods uh, sectors, it, it's been an even nastier bear market than what the indices will show. Um, so, you know, when your strategy is out of favor for, uh, you know, two years, uh, over two years, um, I think as an asset manager, you worry, uh, you know, what, what your clients will think uh, if they will stick around for the eventual recovery. Um, so, you know, the, the bear market uh, continuing for another one year, two year, I don't know. Uh, that, that would be my biggest worry. 
but fundamentally, I think the companies are doing really well, so uh, not, not worried on that front. And then in terms of uh, what excites me the most, I would say uh, just having the opportunity to be invested right now. There are so many high-quality companies trading at uh, valuations that I think we haven't seen in a very, very long time. Um, so I think it's a, a generational wealth creation opportunity right now, and uh, just having the, the chance to be invested at this point in time, I think, is, uh, is, is really exciting for the next few years. Very cool. Harris? Um, I wouldn't say anything's keeping me up at night, um, but maybe as far as what might be the largest risk going forward, um, I suspect it's something that I really have no current inkling about, like you know, the way that we didn't really think about COVID as the big risk back in 2019. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but it's sort of feeling like it would be something out of left field. Um, I, I, I'll echo some of what Matthew said. I think um, valuations have come down a lot. Obviously, there's still plenty of pockets of, of overvaluation, and, you know, overvaluation is the constant friend of the microcap space. So um, I think uh, just the fact that rates are much higher than they used to be um, money's not free anymore, and a lot of company valuations reflect that. And so, you know, back when rates were zero, we really only had one direction where they could go, and now it's not clear that there's just one direction to go anymore. So it means that it makes it a little bit more interesting. Cool. Sam? Uh, nuclear war keeps me up. <laughs> no, um, my kids is the other answer. What keeps me up at night? Um, <laughs> but um, I would say... You know, a lot of the balloon debt that's going to be coming up due with, with these higher interest rates, especially on real estate, um, that's more, less markets, more macro. Um, I think that that can cause a lot of, especially on, on, on office real estate, a lot of the owners are going to hand back the keys to the bank, and there's going to be some second-order effects to that. Um, I wouldn't say it keeps me up at night, but I think that's kind of like a realistic um, scenario that's going to happen. Um, and then what gets me excited is I feel like this has now become like a, a it's, the market's rationalized and it's become a, like a real stock picker's market again when, you know, especially after COVID, um, you know, a lot of people were making a lot of money for the, not the right reasons. Um, and so that, to me, that, that gets me excited is that, that it's like rationalized and normalized. Cool. Ryan, close this out. Yeah, interest rates have surged and spending habits really have not uh, changed much. So, you know, the consumer is a huge driver just on a macro basis. Um, at some point, they got to pay the piper, and I, I think there is a consumer slowdown coming. Uh, you, you know, the jobs numbers maybe haven't said they would. There will be a slowdown, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that that's something that I do think about at night. Um, if it's not the kids or the dog keeping me up at night, of course, but... Last night it was the dog, which was wonderful. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Now, what excites me, we have five or ten names that we've done a lot of research on that have come down in price that we really like that we want to enter into over the next uh, six to 12 months. And it really excites me that we could get those quality businesses at a reasonable price, and we think we'll see that. Uh, some of them are entering that range right now and have entered, and some we think will come in that range over the next, uh, like I said, 12 months. And that excites me because I could buy some great businesses that I'm going to look back at five years from now and say, I'm so glad I got the opportunity to buy that. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you for answering all my questions. I'd like to open it up to the audience to do my job for me. So does anybody have any questions? Yeah, maybe two related questions. Um, to the extent that you find an opportunity and you get your position, how comfortable are you aggressively telling that story using digital marketing or other means, maybe even ways that the company itself, for regulatory reasons or just scrutiny, can't do? And maybe the related question is, to what extent do you invest time building your own brand and creating followings so that when you take a position, there are buyers out there who want to follow you in? I can, I can, I can start. Um, back when I was a private investor uh, 10 years ago, I, I started a blog called the Space Microcaps. Uh, and the goal was to share educational articles and also some investment ideas. Uh, and, uh, and also we did some live events in Montreal to build a, a following, a community there. So uh, uh, I had a partner back in the days, and, and for us it was a way to uh, 
like you said, get some following, uh, get some people interested in our ideas. Because you know, when you invest in a micro cap, especially for us, like nano caps, like 10 million market cap companies, for example, nobody knows about them. And uh, if if you have no way of getting them a bit more discovered, it can stay undervalued for a very, very long time. So we figured out, you know, let's let's just share our fundamental research and help people, uh, just walk them through uh, how we look at the business, why we think it's attractive, and then people can do their own research, and uh, and hopefully make make a decision afterwards. So um, that's been a good way uh, on my on my end to, um, to to help my ideas get discovered. Um, yeah, I mean it's a really good question, right? Because um, I think the key to uh, ever telling a company's story as an investor in that company is to keep it factual, and uh, you know to not do things that would be you know out of favor for the company to talk about. So um, definitely, you know, not using hyperbole and to always use uh, factual evidence behind everything you say. Um, but yeah, having, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter and uh, I think the best benefit that I've found actually uh, of having a public profile, although it has helped for some of my investments to say, you know, here's my pitch. And sometimes uh, there's been positive reaction to that. But um, I've met a lot of really great people through uh, my social media uh, presence and, you know, uh, I think maybe some of the people are the people you know, sitting at this table right now. So um, I think it's been very valuable from a networking perspective and uh, getting good flow of good ideas from other smart investors. Hey, that's how I got to know Otter Market. <laughs> hey, anybody else want to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really valuable. Um, I, think, I, think, I think Harris does a really good job, to be honest. Um, follow him. Um, but um, I think it's also kind of risky as well, too, which, which is why I kind of don't do it um, too much. Um, I also have to go through compliance as well whenever I you know, mention a name or do things, certain things. Um, but, um, but I think it is valuable. I, I'd, I'd say one of the reasons why I say it's risky is because, like, let's say you mention a name. You should actually be kind of locked up, I would say. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell. Let's say you're talking about a name you own. I wouldn't sell it for some time at least until there's another material event that comes out. Um, and also, especially in the microcap space, these, some of these things are so illiquid. Um, so that, that's part of, the, part of the risk aspect for me, is why I don't spend too much time doing that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I, we're, we're conflict-free research, so a company can't pay us to get into our research. Our loyalty is to our clients. Um, you know, if we own a company, we have a podcast, uh, we, we may talk about them on on the show. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there who do great things on social media. I'm not huge on social media, but uh, maybe I should be, right? But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's a good way to promote yourself. But, uh, you know, we, if, we, if we own a company, we might tell them to come out to quality conferences and they can talk to quality, you know, investors who may invest in their companies. So I, the two companies we own are here today. So if we can you know, promote them in Vela and Geodrill are here today. They've, we've owned them for a significant period of time. They're good businesses. And, you know, if they can come out to events like this where there's great investors to invest in them, uh, you know, if, if they get a promotion out of that, it's a good thing. It's not really part of our strategy. Our strategy is to find great companies and invest in them and, and tell our clients to invest in them as well. By the way, Geodrill and Envela will be presenting at 1 and one thirty tomorrow where you'll be doing the fireside Q&As with them. Yes, so. Yes. Check those out. Next question. I, I'm just, I, I, I want to state by saying I love Canada. And I know you guys love Canada too. But watching, you know, typical news and everything else like that, how do you measure, like, as you invest in Canadian companies, um, the response to COVID in Canada versus if the, the latest snake flu, crab flu, a worm flu comes through and there's a shutdown and stuff isn't happening in Canada, how do you weigh that in your investments in Canadian companies? I'm just curious on how that weighs on you and how you're, you know, making decisions like is this going to shut down most of Canada for six to nine months? That's all. 
Yeah, well, I mean, many, one of the things I think it was talked about on the panel before, um, one of the things, uh, many of the businesses that are listed on the TSX, Toronto Stock Exchange, TSX Venture, uh, a lot of them have their businesses basically in the U.S. They just happen to be listed there, uh, and we can find kind of a mispricing of the company. So that wouldn't be as much of a worry to us. Most of the companies we own that are listed on the TSX do business all throughout the world, even smaller companies, so it wouldn't be as much of a worry. Um, we have disagreements with our government all the time, uh, but uh, I'm going to leave politics out of it right now. Um, but, yeah, it's... Most of the companies, to be honest, aren't Canada-centric, even though they're listed on the uh, TSX or TSX Venture. There are some companies that might be an issue. I don't expect it will be right now. Uh, one other interesting point is that I think in the U.S., um, fairly few sizable businesses got a lot of um, subsidy money from the government due to COVID, but um, the Canadian government was quite generous. <laughs> um, so there are some companies up in Canada who... Uh, you know, got a nice windfall actually out of COVID, um, believe it or not. Matthew, yeah. this is in your wheelhouse right here. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I think, uh, like Ariel said, uh, I think the, you, you might disagree with how the government handled the, the, the COVID crisis, but uh, in the end, I think it turned out fine, at least for the companies I own, uh, no, no major issues. And... Uh, I guess, especially since I invest heavily in tech, uh, those companies wouldn't be as uh, affected as much by uh, shutdowns. Uh, and also, you know, the other sector we're, we're very um, heavily invested in is uh, healthcare. And so those are typically uh, more like essential businesses that wouldn't be shut down as well. So for me, it doesn't really change, you know, my, my strategy uh, in terms of what could happen next if there's another pandemic, for example. I mean, I, I live in California, and I think California shut down <laughs> quite harshly as well, too. Um, but, you know, occasionally I will invest in a California-based company. <laughs> <laughs> next question. Yeah, Matu, uh, when you first started talking, you, you brought up the, the recurring revenue uh, aspect of, of valuation. Uh, I'm curious how you, and there's a big uh, push for recurring revenue valuations here in the States. I've been involved in a couple of deals that got some significant premiums. Um, how important is recurring revenue, or how excited do you get about recurring revenue? And to the extent that it exists, is there a premium that you would put on that type of revenue flow? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, I mean, it's it's hard to quantify exactly the type of premium that I would be putting on recurring revenue, spe specifically because it's a, it's a whole. You know, do I like the the business model? Do I like management? Uh, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I I, I mean, f for me, it comes down to uh, predictability. Uh, if I want to invest, especially uh, running a fund now. Uh, we have to take bigger positions, and we have to hold them uh, for uh, for the long term. Um, so, I mean, having that element of predictability that I can make a forecast for the next maybe two, three, four years, uh, because I know those revenues are recurring and the company has a high uh, revenue retention rate, I think it is really important and uh, helps, helps me uh, make better forecasts, basically. Just one last quick question. If you're investing in microcap companies, sometimes in Canada, whose um, business value isn't reflected in their in the liquidity profile for their stock, how do you get? How do you overcome um, a great business that just doesn't trade? That's a good question. Um, as somebody who owns uh, some of these types of companies, I think the only answer is um, have patient capital to deploy. So um, I uh, invest my own money and my family's money, and uh, I don't expect that I will ever have you know, a serious need to uh, sell the portfolio down to, you know, make, uh, to meet uh, cash redemptions. Um, most investors who run funds have to worry about the liquidity profile of their holdings. And even if you don't, you still might ask yourself the question of, you know, what do I do if my thesis changes at some point and I really have no option uh, to really sell in the market? Um, 
these companies tend to be cheap for that exact reason. And I think if you're patient and you do good underwriting and valuation analysis, then you'll be rewarded for owning them. Sam, Ryan? Um, I mean, I think for me, it's more like you have to look for some sort of catalyst or some sort of exit strategy because even in the situation where that's the case, like what's going to change that's going to, you know, make make you be able to get out or, right? Like, so I think that's where Harris is talking about, like, it, like performance of the actual business, underlying business matters. Um, you know, are there... Are there situations where the company can use its cash flows to pay off debt, creating more equity value? Um, that's something that that's a common theme that I like to invest in. Um, I, I think I think those aspects are, are some that I look for. Yeah, patience is key, and in an illiquid Canadian microcap, um, knowing the exit point may be a sale of the business, or at times we've seen them graduate to a U.S. exchange, get more liquidity that way. It is patience. If it's a good company, it tip, the market typically finds a way at some point, whether or not it is a bio, whether or not it finally moves to another exchange, or it just becomes too difficult to ignore. Uh, but it is a lot of patience. And knowing when you go in, that money is stuck in there for you know a period of time, if it is a highly illiquid company. Another question? Yeah. I, I thank you. How do you view microcaps that do offerings with uh, warrants on them? Half warrant, full warrant, favor or older favor. Matthew, um, I, I like them if if I'm participating in them. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I mean I, I I think in Canada it's more common than in the U.S. to add warrants to uh, to financings. I mean. Uh, I, I don't have a statistic for you, but I think most deals in Canada will come with warrants. And, um, uh, you know, if, if I'm already a shareholder of the company and they're raising money with warrants, uh, obviously I'm not thrilled. Uh, but um, typically, as a fund, we try to buy our positions in, into a financing to get the liquidity. Uh, going back to the other question before, it's a great way for us to establish a position. So if there are warrants with it, uh, I'm I'm pretty happy. Yeah, I'd agree. It's great on the, on the private place when you're actually involved in the private placement. Um, I like five-year warrants better than two-year because um, more long-term in nature, obviously. Um, but I'd say one of the one of the big problems or one of the issues I've seen with companies is that um, you'll look at the capital structure and you'll see a ton of warrants outstanding, and it kind of puts a lid on the stock. And then so you're like, ah, oh, you know, love the business, but you know, that's a huge, huge issue. Yeah, if you can get them long life warrants are, are yeah, what we would like to see. Yeah. Harris, did you want, or? Uh, I, I don't typically participate in um, private placements, so uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm specifically usually looking for companies that don't need to raise any money. Well, guys, I think we're there. Um, can everybody give uh, where they can go and find more information on you and follow you on social media? So, uh, Ryan, we'll start with you. Uh, just go to our website, www.keystocks, key, what you put in the door, stocks, with an S on the end, dot com. And social media? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't even know. See, this, is, why, this, this is, is what we're yeah, talking this, about. This you is know? what I'm saying. Maybe I should, right? <laughs> He's, I at Ryan He's at Ryan Irvine. There you go. Just search me and Keystone or Keystocks, and you'll find me there. <laughs> I, I do tweet sometimes. I, sometimes. Just, I don't even know what it is. What's the handle? Sam. For God's sake. You, you can follow my personal and social life on my Instagram handle, Moneyman Sam Nam, uh, <laughs> or on Twitter, S Namiri. Uh, you can find me, Harris Perlman, on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm not very active on social media, but uh, I, I guess LinkedIn would be the best way to reach out to me, and you can visit the website, Rivmont.ca, as well. Very cool. Well, I, before I let you all go, I also wanted to take this opportunity to, you know, we have another couple days of the event here in Vegas, but I'm very happy to announce that we're going to be doing our next in-person event. Uh, we usually only do one a year, but our next one's going to be in Vancouver. Speaking of all the Canadian stuff we're talking about, we're actually going to Vancouver September 6th and 7th uh, later this year, 2023. So look out for more information on that. We're very excited. And with that, thank you all for attending our first Day one here at the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas. And uh, let's go to the networking event. Thank you.
cool. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.